I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, hey, good morning. Um, my name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, it's good to be with you. Um, this morning, um, here's a summary of what we just read. It's a morning about arguing with Jesus. That's what it all is. Um, and lucky for you, there are three arguments, which means you're getting essentially three sermons in one this morning. So I don't know how you feel about that, but you're here, so deal with it. Um, <laughs> and I don't know about you, but you, if you even just firstly hear that passage, you might think, this is rather strange. How do these arguments have anything to do with maybe even where I'm at today? When you, get under, when you get underneath it, there's actually three things. The arguments are about politics, hope, and love. So it's pretty practical, right? And I would submit to you this, that Jesus in our passage today is challenging us to embrace a politics of paradox, a robust bodily hope, and a double love. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we pray this morning just that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, that they might be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, embracing a politics of paradox. Um, you know, the passage opens and two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are setting a trap for Jesus. It's a trap. Um, look with me at verse 14 again. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? That, my friends, is a loaded question. So loaded. Um, to understand a little bit more about this, 25 years before this happened, the Romans had actually imposed this tax, the, the tax of the denarius. And it was, suffice it to say, emotionally traumatizing. Because when they imposed the tax, there were two things that it said. Firstly, politically, it meant this, that if you're an Israelite and you're paying this tax, it means you're not free. You're not free. You are, you are subject to the Roman Empire. 
But secondly, there is a religious component because on the actual coin, on the denarius, there was an inscription that said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, this emperor is the divine son of God, which was an affront to their God. It was so controversial at the time that a man named Judas from Galilee led an armed revolt against Rome when it was imposed. And so here's the trap. If Jesus says, no, you don't pay the tax, well, he's like Judas of the Galileans. He's leading a revolt. But if he says, pay it, then he's a sellout. You see the trap? So what does Jesus do? Look at verses 15 and 16. Uh, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now, what's interesting is when Jesus does this, um, he's actually doing something here as well. I think Mark wants us here because he's also not drawing on just merely the intention of Jesus. What do you intend to do as a king? But also Jesus' identity. Because remember a moment ago I mentioned this, that on the coin is this inscription that Tiberius, divine son of Augustus, it's a claim to a kingship. And do you remember? Well, some of you won't because you weren't here, but Mark 1.1, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, back in September, it began with this line. It was simply this. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is the king. So as Jesus holds the coin, what's happening is this, is who's the real king? You know, we all know this, there can't be two kings. So this is about Jesus' identity. So the question is, how will Jesus respond? And look at how he responds in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Um, here's why they marvel. When Jesus says render, think about the last time you were at the grocery store or checking out, your groceries go through, the number comes up, this is your bill. This is what you owe. When Jesus says render, Jesus is saying, this is what you owe. And notice the first thing he says, is he says Caesar is owed something. Renders to Caesar something. In fact, you might put it this way, the tax was his money. He's the one who coined it. <clears throat> so Jesus is saying, give it to him. Now, if Jesus were to stop there, Jesus would have been called a sellout. But then he says, render to God the things that are God's. And what does that mean? That means, well, what does God owe? What does God have? God has everything. Which means this, on the one hand, there is a limit to Caesar's power, to his authority. And so here's the politics of Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus says, I can be submissive. On the other hand, I'm going to be subversive. Do you get it? Now, what does this mean for us? This takes a lot of wisdom 
But let me just draw two implications. The first is, the politics of Jesus ought to make the followers of Jesus very distinct no matter where they live. Notice for a moment, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come together to trap Jesus. Both of those groups are very different politically. They're united against Jesus, but Jesus does not fit into either of those camps. He can't be fit in either of them. And so let me put it this way in our day. One pastor friend of mine who lives in Berkeley, which, by the way, is even more politically charged than Madison, he said this to his congregation. I'll say it to you. Is Jesus on the left or the right? Is Jesus liberal or conservative? Is Jesus progressive or about preservation? Is Jesus about changing systems or changing people? It's a trick question. Another pastor friend of mine put it this way. If you are tired about hearing about refugees and minorities, who is discipling you? If you are tired about hearing about the unborn and pro-life causes, who is discipling you? Jesus is for all the vulnerable. And here's what this means practically. This means um, if we're a community that orbits around the politics of Jesus, this is going to hopefully mean that there are going to be different political affiliations in our midst. And what that means is if you're here this morning and you say, I don't know how anyone could vote for, and you fill in the blank. Be careful. Are you reducing Jesus and his politics to one party? One practical step is I want want you to consider this. To turn down something and to turn up something. Here's my concern. Um, Many of us struggle to root our lives in the scriptures where Jesus rooted his politics. But we do not have a problem filling our lives with podcasts and Twitter feeds of our particular political affiliation. And my question is, who is discipling you? Let me give you a challenge. For a week, turn down your political podcasts. Turn off your social media feed. And turn up Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Because that is where Jesus gives the politics of his kingdom the agenda of his kingdom. Yesterday I was driving around because I have to practice what I preach. So I turned on Matthew 5, the Bible app, pushed listen, and ran errands. You know what I heard? 
an agenda filled with righteousness and obedience. Warning in regards to eternity that, that have to deal with how we handle anger, our lust, retaliation, a call to loved one's enemies, to give to the needy, to be tutored by him in prayer, a note about fasting, stewarding resources for his kingdom, a call to trust a father who provides, to be humble in your judgment of others, a warning about false prophets, and all of this to build our lives on a rock that cannot be shaken. Who is discipling us? So we ought to be distinct. But secondly, we ought to be engaged. It may sound strange, but, but Jesus' statement should lead towards involvement. There's a section in John 19, Jesus is on trial, and he's come before Pilate. And Pilate is upset because Jesus is not answering him. And at one point, Jesus in John 19 says this, do you not know, excuse me, Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Notice how Jesus is submissive to a degree. He recognizes Pilate has the authority in some measure, and yet, what does he do? He calls out the injustice. He's like, Pilate, you're part of these shenanigans. I'm here on trial. I'm innocent. You're part of it. And you're accountable ultimately to God. This is certainly what individuals like Martin Luther King Jr. and others have worked towards. And lastly, it's not just to critique. That's a part of it. But in an early letter, Paul would write Timothy. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he would instruct Timothy in establishing a young church to urge them to have supplications and prayers for those who are kings and all who are in high positions. Which to apply that in our day would be to suggest that in our regular work of prayer is to pray for the likes of Tony Evers, and Biden. How does that land on you? You see, Jesus, do you understand this politics of paradox, how awkward it is? And yet, if you're shaped by him, if you're in the midst of this argument, don't you understand how revolutionary he is? Submissive yet subversive. All right, sermon number two. <laughs> Next argument. Jesus challenges us to embrace a bodily hope. Let me ask you this question. Um, what do you believe happens after you die? The Sadducees who come before Jesus, um, they're one of the sects of Judaism, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. It was just, you lived, you died, it's done. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus, and they come with this kind of hypothetical situation. It sounds strange to us, but it's essentially this. A man's brother dies, leaves a wife and no child. And in Judaism, it was kind of the responsibility of the next of kin to take that wife and uh, have offspring so that actually family line could continue. And so the hypothetical count goes on each time over, no child, no child, and death, and death, and death. And so the question is, at the resurrection, 
who's, you know, who's the husband, whose wife is, is, is she to be? And you may not see it in the text, but that's actually a moment where Jesus is, in a sense, um, these, excuse me, the Sadducees are basically saying to Jesus, your whole proposition of resurrection is foolish. See how foolish it is in light of this hypothetical? You know, in our day, I would say there's different reasons that people think a resurrection is maybe foolish to believe in. I just quote one, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, after his initial cancer diagnosis in 2003, at a Stanford commencement speech, he said this, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be. Because, and listen to this, death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Do you hear the nihilism? Do you hear the sense of deal with it, accept death? It is what it is. Jesus responds in verse 24 differently. Look at what he says. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> Jesus offers two critiques to the Sadducees, and I would say to our cultural moment today. Firstly, you don't know the scriptures. Where, where is your source of hope? Where is it? Jesus is grounding his hope in the scriptures. But then secondly, also he notes, do you know the God who has all the power? You know that God? Is that where your hope is found? Let me just unpack this for a moment. Um, the Pharisees, for them, their source, they only adopted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Everything after that was innovation. And so they looked at the first five books and said, hey, by the way, I don't see any resurrection here. But what Jesus is saying is this, is death was not in the original design of when God created the world. Death entered when sin entered. And he made a promise to do something about it. And so Jesus makes a, a remark that in verse 25, that actually there is no marriage in heaven, which, side note, could be a whole other, like, a lot of questions there. Okay, that's interesting for those who are married, right? But Jesus goes on, and he takes them to the Pentateuch, their source. And look at what he says in verses 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, the reason why you can have a bodily hope of a future is because God has made a promise. In other words, you know, way back in the Pentateuch, God made a promise to deliver his people from their enemies. But what kind of God would he be if he delivered them from their physical enemies and then they just died? That's it. Jesus is saying, don't you understand he's the God of the living? He's still there. He's going to deliver them from all that they face. And let me just for a moment comfort you with this. 
Um, in the fourth century, there's a woman named Sapida, and she had a brother who was a deacon at the church in Carthage where Augustine was the bishop. And um, her brother, Timothy, had died. And right before that, Sapida had woven a tunic for Timothy because he was a deacon at the church. And so she ended up sending the tunic to Augustine anyway. And Augustine wrote a letter back to her and listened to what he said. He writes this, All is not lost of your labors. It is, of course, reason for tears that you no longer see as you once did. Your loving brother, a deacon of the church of Carthage, let your heart be lifted up and your eyes will be dry. For the love by which Timothy loved and loved Sapida has not perished. That love remains preserved in its repository and is hidden with Christ in the Lord, the Lord who is willing to die for us so that we might live, the one who can restore what has been lost, bring to life what has died, repair what has been corrupted, and keep thereafter without end what has come to an end. One of the things I love about this letter is notice how Augustine, he empathizes with her. There's reason for your tears. But secondly, notice how he says, your love for your brother, it's not gone. Do you, do you catch that? If you think that after you die, there is nothing, guess what? Your love is gone. But notice what he's saying. Because of what Christ has done, because of who Christ is, do you understand that your love for others is actually kept in Christ? It is not lost. That's incredible. You know, um, if you're not a Christian this morning, one of the things that I think about is, I would say if you really get in tune with who you are, you long for more. You long for more. There's something in you that longs for more. James K. Smith has this great quote that I'll just put before you. He writes this, what if there was someone who gathered up all that is lost what if there was a beloved who could never die, who you love, who loves you first, whose love called everything into existence and is therefore stronger than death? Do you understand the what if we're getting there in April when Easter hits? Christians for 2,000 years have held to the bodily hope that Jesus has risen from the dead, which means this. That Jesus is the one who will gather up all that is lost. That Jesus is the one who's the beloved who could never die. Jesus is the one who has loved you first. Jesus is the one who has called everything into existence. And he is stronger than death. What a hope. All right. Lastly. Jesus challenges us to embrace a double love. You know, the final argument in this passage is 
a scribe comes to Jesus with this perennial question, which is the greatest commandment? And what's interesting in that day and age, they had actually delineated the entire laws down to 613. So Jesus, which one? And notice how Jesus responds. In verses 29 and 30, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you notice what Jesus does there? He can't give just one. <laughs> Did you catch that? Which one's the greatest? And he says, well, this one, but then there's another. Let me just offer three, three implications for us. One is um, this double love is countercultural. Our, our moment today is filled with love yourself. That's the mantra of what we see. That's what we see being celebrated throughout our culture. It's hard not to be shaped by this. But notice what Jesus is saying is love God with everything you have first. And then love others as you love yourself. There's an assumption you already love yourself. Do you notice the order? And I want, I want you to notice this isn't this isn't obedience kind of driven by merit. It's not, you know, love God or he won't love you. But it's rather because of his love for you. That's how you respond in kind. And secondly, notice this double love is inseparable. It says a moment ago, but Jesus doesn't just give one, he gives two. In all out love for God, that includes your whole being, will in kind produce a love for neighbor. In fact, later on, John, uh, one of the disciples in his epistle, would say it's actually a mark of whether you know someone's a Christian or not. In 1 John 3, look at what he says. By this we know love, that he, that he Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Notice what John says there. He says, if, if you love God, then it's going to spill over in love towards others, not just in words, but actually in deeds. Lastly, this double love challenges us teleologically. And that's a big term, but basically it just rhymed with the other two. That's why I did it that way. But this is what it means. Um, that the end goal, the purpose of your life, what you were created for, is this, this double love. And I think how this hits, is particularly people in Madison, um, was kind of spelled out by a, a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, a number of years ago. I've, I've mentioned this a few times, but I think it's so helpful. He wrote this column talking about resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And, you know, resume virtues are those you put on your resume, the skills you bring to the marketplace. 
eulogy virtues are the ones that get mentioned at your eulogy. The things like who you are in your depth of being, what is the nature of your relationships? Are you bold, loving, dependent, consistent? And he goes on to write that, you know, all of us would agree the eulogy virtues, those are the most important. Not that they're more important than the resume ones, but our culture spends more time teaching skills and strategies for career success. And I'll just put it this way, and particularly in a place like Madison, where people come here to be trained, educated, skilled, sent out. It's a wonderful place, so many things. But this deal, what's shaping you? You can grow to be people who, who are very good at building an external career, but very thin on how to build inner character. And so, brothers and sisters, when Jesus says the greatest commandment are these two, Jesus is saying, these ought to be the weightiest things in your life. The weightiest. The weightiest. Not like number four on the list. Like the weightiest. Number one. So let me ask you, what are you pursuing who are you becoming? So as we close, this sort of three-in-one sermon, how do we bring this together? Jesus, I hope you see how challenging Jesus is, right? This politics of paradox, a robust bodily hope, a double love. Well, I think here's how it all comes together. Take note of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are in the final week of Jesus' life. In which Jesus is going to go to the cross. This one who seeks to shape you to a different way of living is the one who gives all of himself for you. He's not just a teacher. He is a savior. And he loves you. And he calls you to this, to embrace a life that's only possible. Hear this. It is only possible to live this out in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your words, for your life. Well, we pray this morning that you would take this text and you would shape us. <laughs> the places that need to be built up, the things that need to be torn down. Would you, by your spirit, have your way with us and make us to be a people who love you and follow you in our politics, with our hope, and with this double love. And we ask this in your name. Amen.